Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, Southbridge. It is uh, great to be gathered together. I was talking to a friend right before the service. He said, I could use an encounter with Jesus. I don't know what kind of week you've had. Could have been awesome. Could have been terrible. I'm going to bet that everybody here could use an encounter with Jesus. Amen? We are continuing our series called Encounters, as you can see, so that works out perfect. I'm so glad that you came today. And I'm glad that some of you are ready to laugh because we're going to have a good time together. We're looking at a really intense and serious passage of Scripture this morning. It's in John chapter 11. If you want to turn there, you can. I want to thank you, those of you who came out on Wednesday night. Uh, this past week, we were over at the Strickland Road campus. We were praying through the campus, and uh, people wrote uh, names of people that they were praying for on the floor and on the stage and verses of Scripture and prayers that they had. And there was one that was written right by where I'm going to be preaching at, up on the stage, and it was from Isaiah. Somebody wrote down. It says, Here I am, send me. I thought, what a great attitude for myself to have as I go to preach, for all of us to have as we open up God's Word. That what, God, what are you going to send us out to do after you leave this place? And so let's just go to him and ask him right now and uh, ask him to do a work in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come into your presence. Thank you that uh, this isn't just a study of some book from, that has some historical stories in it or some information for us to know, but that you are living and active. And you say your Word is living and active and you pierce our hearts with it. Will you pierce our hearts? God, I pray for everybody here who's got a hardened heart or maybe calluses have started to build up over this past week for some reason. They've grown stale or sterile in in some way with you, God, that you would ignite our hearts. Don't let us get lukewarm, almost to be hot or cold. I'd rather we were running from you than being lukewarm with you, and God, that would be evident that you'd come and pursue us like you've done so many people so many times. God, I pray for those who aren't here because of sin. I pray that you'd grab their hearts today and draw them to you. And God, I pray for those that are here in this moment, God, that you'd speak to our hearts. I pray that you'd speak to us in a way that you would transform us into the people you desire for us to be. Call us to next steps of faith. Rebuke us with their sin. Correct us. Change our thinking. Change our minds if we're starting to believe lies. Allow relationships and connections to happen. That will help with that. But right now, in these moments, speak through my lips. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This week uh, on Friday, we took the whole staff, we went to the Carolina Beach, and we were hanging out there together and having a good time, and I was watching my kids, so as you don't know, I got four daughters, they're playing in the waves, they're jumping around, they're having a great time, and I was watching my oldest daughter, who was seemingly fearless as she was out there, you know, bodyboarding and having a great time in the waves, and it reminded me of the first time we did a, a beach vacation together as a family. And uh, we had just the, the one child that was three years old, and one, our one other daughter was one, but she was, you know, she's one. She's not really doing a whole lot on the beach. And uh, we were out there, and it was Hilton Head Island. We had rented a place to stay in for the week and had a good time. And while we were there, the whole goal that I had with my three-year-old daughter was to teach her to trust me more. And so whenever we do something, I'd ask her the question, do you trust me? And I remember she'd say back to me with this exact accent on the O, I do. And she'd always go, woo, kind of as she was doing that. I do. And I remember her saying it that exact way every time. We'd go on a bike ride. we rented some bikes and put her on the back of the bike. and be like, do you trust me? Like, I do. And I'm thinking, well, you probably shouldn't. But we'll just see how this goes. And, uh, you know, go through the trails and having a good time with her. And, and then, you know, do, go to the pool and she's jumping. She's got her swimmies on, but she's jumping in and get a little bit further. Do you trust me? I do. And put her back up a little bit further back and just keep doing that. I do. And she's having a good time. Until we got out to take the family picture. We did the, you know, the token. Had to take a picture at the beach picture that year. Had two little kids. I'm setting the timer up on a stroller that wasn't designed to go through the sand. We got the stroller out there. Put the timer on. Run around. I'm supposed to get in the picture and get two kids to pay attention in 10 seconds. <laughs> like mission impossible possible at this moment. And so I go over there. I'm trying to get it. And my, my one daughter, the three-year-old, she keeps, she, Shanna's holding her. She keeps looking over Shanna's shoulder and she's watching the water that's moving. Okay, we've gotten her to where she's not afraid of the pool water. And then she actually yelled out, that water's going to get us. <laughs> and I thought, well, it's possible, but I think we're okay here on this dry sand. And she was terrified of the ocean. And so then my goal, my hope for her was that by the end of the week, she'd overcome that fear and she'd get in the ocean. Fast forward to the last day of vacation, I, I kind of like to squeeze as much into whatever I, we're doing, and we were supposed to check out that day at 10 a.m. I got up that morning, decided I was going to have some more fun that day, and so I take my daughter down to the pool, she's jumping in, we're having a good time. I said, Ella, do you want to do one more trip out to the beach? I said, come on, let's go, and I grab her, and we start walking out, and she's got the swimmies on. I remember she had them wrapped around my neck, and she just kept squeezing tighter and tighter as we walked. She was, I don't want to go to the beach one more time, I don't want to go to the beach one more time. And we're walking out, and that walk just seems longer and longer, probably because I had not enough oxygen, but we're just seems longer and longer as we're walking out there. And as we're headed towards the ocean, she says a statement. No one had said this statement to her all week. She says, I don't want to put my toes in. 
do you know what happened to me in all my three years of fatherly wisdom at that moment? My vision for my child's life at that moment was, you're going to put your toes in the ocean. Do you know what a vision is? A vision is a picture in your mind of what could be. It's a passion in your heart of what should be true. And let me ask you this. Those of you, specifically those of you that are children of God, and not everybody is, all of you that are born again, all of you placed your faith in Jesus, do you think that your father has a vision for your life? A picture in his mind of what could be, a passion in his heart of what should be true for you? Let me tell you, I don't know exactly what your next step of faith are, but I promise you this. It means stepping out into the unknown. Do you know why my daughter was so scared of the ocean? Why is it now, at almost 13-year-old, she's having a great time playing in the ocean, just a, just a blast. There's a healthy fear. It is powerful. It is big. But she's not afraid to put her toes in. Not afraid to go jump around on the waves. When she was three, the ocean was totally unknown to her. Some people say that the fear of the unknown is the father of all fears. Can I tell you, I promise you, whatever God's calling you to faith in today, it means stepping into the unknown. And you see it throughout the Bible over and over again. You see some people who responded great. You see some people who denied God's call. And you see it went terrible, by the way. You got the Israelites standing at the edge of the promised land. God's promised them this land flowing with milk and honey. They've got the God of the universe promised. They're like, there's giants in the land. We're not going. I'd prefer slavery. At least we knew we had onions. And you know, when we're called to faith, you know what we oftentimes do? We grasp for control and for comfort. And there's a battle that's taking place between those things. And what God calls you out into is the unknown. Like, Peter, step out of the boat. Come follow me. Drop your nets. Come. You don't know what this is going to be like. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what the next three years are going to be. Come follow me. And what about for you? Think about Abraham. Literally, leave everything you know come into the unknown. Noah had never seen a worldwide flood before. Moses, it says, left the palace of Egypt for the treasures of Christ. What is that? Hebrews chapter 11, read it. How does he know about Christ? He's thousands of years before that. You come into the unknown, Moses. Step out. What about you? And what does it mean for you? For different people, different things. Some of you, it means placing your faith in Jesus. Let's be honest about why you haven't done it. For many of you, it's not because you need more answers to questions. It's not because you're not sure about the, all these Christians. are. We're all hypocrites. You're right. You got it. There is pain in the world. There is trouble in the world. God is still sovereign and powerful. Here's what the real problem is. You're afraid. You're afraid of what it's going to do to change your life. You're afraid of what people are going to think about you. You're afraid you don't know what's going to happen. And God's calling you. It takes faith. For some of you, you're believers. You've never shared your faith. It takes faith. Time for you to be, go to another level in generosity with your finances, with your time. Some of you, you've never confessed sin to another believer. The Bible commands us to do that. That's going to take faith. What's God calling you to? I know that it means stepping into the unknown. So today I've titled today's message this. How do you have courage in the face of the unknown? How can you have courageous trust, courageous faith, you can call it a synonym, same thing, in the midst of the unknown? If you have your Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 11. We're going to look at a story that some people say is the most potent miracle Jesus did. The climactic miracle of the Gospels prior to Jesus' own resurrection it's the, it's, he's got a friend, his name is Lazarus. He's been in the tomb for four days. Jesus raises him from the dead. That's the end of the story. Sorry, spoiler alert. But what happens is, and we're really going to focus on at the beginning and see how it is, how can you have courage when so many things are confusing? How can you have courage when there's all this chaos? How can you have courage when there's so much unknown? So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 11. Remember last time we were, we were together last week, we talked about John chapter 9. There was a man who was born blind, and Jesus healed his eyes. Let him, let him see. But what we saw was his whole life was just an illustration. All those years, just an illustration to point people to Christ, who proclaimed in John chapter 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. There's no light apart from Jesus. No one can have light apart from Jesus. We sang songs about it. I was talking to my kids in the car last night. We were talking about something terrible that had happened in our world. I said, girls, you've got to remember, everybody who doesn't know Jesus is walking in darkness. So the answer is, is, is we've got to get Jesus to them. And Jesus is pointing to himself through this man's life who was born blind. Here, what we're going to see, Jesus raises this man from the dead. But you know what he says before he gets to that? Verse 25, read it. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. There's no, resurrect, there's no, there's no way to defeat. Talk about the ultimate unknown for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that death is our last great enemy. That Jesus Christ has overcome that. This isn't Easter today, but let me say something to you. Jesus Christ is risen. There are some Christians here. They've been to church at Easter before. But Jesus doesn't just say he offers resurrection to us. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
You don't have real life apart from Jesus. You can't have victory over death apart from Jesus. But if you can have victory over death, then why can't you trust him in this life? And so let's look at it today as we see somebody who's facing death in John chapter 11. Starting verse 1, what's just happened, uh, that when Jesus was in Jerusalem and in the area where Lazarus was, was currently at, uh, they tried to kill him. Uh, chapter 10, verse 31, they tried to stone him. Chapter 10, verse 39, they're trying to kill him. And then it says this in verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, some of you know that story, and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so he's trying to introduce us to this whole family. So the sister sent word or sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so this is all part of God's plan. Kind of like John chapter nine. There's a purpose in your pain. God's going to glorify, He's going to do what's best for you and glorify Himself even through the most difficult situations in life. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister. And Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, Let's go to Judea again. Now, um, let me just say this about the first seven verses we just read. Everything about them is confusing to everyone who's involved in them except for Jesus. Because you think about what's happened here. This, this guy's sick. He's, it's emphasized over and over again. It's terminal illness we see later. Uh, he's ill. You love him. You love him. It's his family that you know. He's ill. And this messenger comes and Jesus goes, I'm going to wait where I'm at a couple more days. <laughs> uh, when you find out someone you know is about to die, doesn't that kind of reorient your life? Like, it no matter what you're doing at work, doesn't matter what's happening at home, you drop everything and you can't even fix it, but you go. Here's Jesus. They know he's got compassion. They know he's got power. He's even healed from a distance. He's like, I'm going to hang out here for a little while longer. That doesn't make sense. But then at the end of the passage, it says, he decides he's going to go to Judea again. Well, they're going to try and kill him there. That doesn't make sense. That's confusing. What we see is we keep reading is he says, hey, we didn't go. Lazarus is asleep. And they're thinking he's asleep. He's going to get better. That's probably the best thing that could happen for him. You can go wake him up, Jesus. And he goes, he's dead. The disciples don't get that either. They're confused about everything that's happening. The messenger's confused. The disciples are confused. Mary and Martha have to be confused. And so that takes us to our first point today, which is this. That God is in control in your confusion. That God is in control in your confusion. Have you ever been in a spot in life before where you're confused? What is God doing? Why is he doing this? If you had done this instead, why don't you? And I wish, and how, I, maybe I could have, and you start to second guess, and there's regrets, and there's all that stuff. There's a lot of things in life that are confusing. In fact, just even if you back up and just think about just kind of how life works, life is confusing. Like, I, I was looking through some just stuff this week online, and I saw this stop, or this speed limit sign. Check this out. Sometimes I'm driving, I'm like, I don't even know if it's Saturday. Is it like Wednesday? Like, I... I'm not sure. What? I'd be so. Con- I'd get pulled over and I'd be like, officer, just whatever you got to do. I don't even know what just happened. <laughs> Aren't there a lot of things in life that are confusing? You want to be confused? Let me challenge you to do something. Think about what you're doing when you're at the grocery store. Go to the grocery store. And just think about what's happening there. And, and look at some expiration dates. Have you ever tried this? Look at expir- Did you know that sour cream has an expiration date on it? Think about that for a second. Isn't it by nature already bad? It's sour cream. When does it go? It gets worse than this? Really? I was cleaning out our freezer. Uh, a couple months ago, I was cleaning out our freezer, and I kept finding these really dark, rotten, nasty bananas in there. And I'm like, why did my wife throw a net? Does anybody else do this? I don't know. It's like a thing for throwing nasty bananas in the, in the freezer. And I'm like, this is like cry, you know, some kind of cryogenic thing. She thinks there's going to be a cure for whatever these bananas had at some point. We're going to pull them back out. Like, what? I don't know what this is. I was confused by what was happening. There's lots of like, just think about life. There's all these confusing things. You want to do something with food? You want to confuse somebody? If you have any vegetarian friends, give them some animal crackers and watch their face. <laughs> what are they going to do? Yeah, it took a couple of you a second on that one. There you go. There's a lot of confusing stuff in life. If you were here last week, I'm confused about buying mattresses now, just so you know. Just, just FYI, uh, because what happened was, if you weren't here last week, and uh, you should come to church every week. If you weren't here last week and uh, you're a guest, see me in the lobby, I'll tell you a story. But afterwards, some of my friends started sending me text messages, Facebook messages, different messages about what they thought I should do for buying a new mattress. But they sent conflicting reports, and now I don't know. I'm like, I like you, I trust you, I think you're smart. I don't know what to do. Conflicting reports can be confusing. Life can be confusing. 
But it gets real serious when you start to think about God in the whole deal. God, where were you when I was working so hard on my marriage that ended in divorce? Why didn't you change their heart? Why didn't you fix this? God, where were you when a terrible accident took place? Took somebody you loved. God, where were you when I lost my job and said you're always going to provide, but I didn't get to pay my mortgage and the house got foreclosed? Like, it's confusing to our faith. Not just wondering why does life work this way. What do we do with God? And you think about what's happening in this story. In order to do it, let's think about the different characters that we've seen here. So you've got the messenger, you've got Mary and Martha, and you've got the disciples. All of them would be confused. Think about the messenger, first of all. In order to understand the messenger, you've got to know a little bit of geography and the timeline of what's taking place here. And so just basic geography is this. Where the messenger's coming from, where Lazarus is at, to where Jesus is at, takes about a day to travel. When Jesus comes... And he's back at the tomb later in this passage. You get to verse 30, 32 to 35, all in that area. Lazarus has been dead for four days. So let's put the time frame together. The messenger gets this message from Mary and Martha. Go to Jesus. Tell him the one whom he loves. Loves like a brother is the word that's used there. The one whom he loves is sick. He's going to die. And so he leaves. It takes one day to travel. Jesus hangs out where he's at two more days. Jesus takes a day to travel there. That's four days. Do you know what that means? That means when the messenger got to Jesus, Lazarus was probably already dead. But did you see what happens? He comes to Jesus. He finds Jesus. That's great. Jesus is probably hiding out because they're trying to kill him. Finds Jesus. Say, the one whom you love with brotherly love. You know, you know remember Mary who anointed your feet? That family, they're in need of you. And Jesus says, tell them it won't lead to death. If I'm the messenger, I'm going, let's tell them, Jesus. Let's go. You're coming with, right? Like, I'm, I'll be right here. Let's go. And Jesus is like, I'm hanging out here. I'm on my father's time frame. Uh, so why don't you go ahead and take the message? And so the guy travels another day back. When he gets there, Lazarus is definitely dead. Has actually been put into the tomb because they would bury the day that you died. They didn't embalm people. Their bodies started to decay really rapidly, especially in that heat. And so he gets there. And I don't know if you've ever seen someone die. Uh, many of us haven't. We've sterilized it big time in our culture. Uh, we have morticians and hospice and hospitals, and we put people in a big box that looks all nice and cushy and comfortable. And, but death is not pleasant. It's like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, it is the last great enemy, the ultimate unknown for many of us. And Mary and Martha have just watched their brother die. And you're the messenger, and you've got to sort. Jesus said this isn't going to lead to death. Do you even deliver that message? I wouldn't. I wouldn't tell Mary and Martha that. Do you know what that would cause? That would cause a crisis of faith. You're God. You're Jesus. We call you Lord. We say that you are the resurrection. And you were wrong. So what do you do then? That's confusion. What about, what about Mary and Martha? And we probably won't cover these verses today. Maybe we'll, we'll glance at one of them. But both Mary and Martha come to Jesus when he finally does show up four days later. And they say, if you had been here, they both say the exact same thing. Do you know what that means? That means they were probably saying it to each other. Remember been in a grieving situation before and you start to talk and then certain things start to get said and you start to retell the same story to lots of different people and so they probably were saying that to each other. Then when Jesus shows up, we don't know the tone. Was it anger? If you had been here. Or was it questioning? Like, why weren't you here? But either way, they're going, if is such a big word. It's just two letters, right? But isn't that a huge word? We have times, when we use the word if, a lot of times what we're doing is we're talking about our biggest regrets and our biggest pains. If God had done this, if I had, if, I, if this would have happened, if only this, and we think back, and it represents all this stuff, and usually it's wrapped around those times when you wonder, where were you, God? You ever been there? Where were you at, God? Where were you at in this? Where were you at in my job? Where were you at in this relationship? Where were you at in that church situation? Where were you at in my, in my marital situation? Where were you at? Let me give you a statement. Some of you, some of you like to tweet or, or some of you like catchy statements, but here it is. When life seems unclear to you, God is still in control. Amen. When life seems unclear, God's in control. Here's the advantage we have reading a Bible story is that we know how this thing ends. They don't even know that at this moment. And so we've got insight they don't have. You don't think God knew more than that? Mary and Martha were probably confused. But think about the disciples. You know what the disciples were confused about? Not just about whether Lazarus had died or not. Not just about what was going to happen in their life. But what about, why does John, one of the disciples, who was there, write so much about Jesus' love for this family? Did you notice that? 
go back to the, the verses. Look at verse 2. He introduces this family. I'll tell you what's really interesting about verse 2 in just a second. He says, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Do you know what's really interesting about that? It hasn't happened yet. It's in next week's passage, in, in John chapter 12. And so why is John telling us this ahead of him ever telling us the story of it happening? He's trying to show, he's trying to let us as the readers know he's really connected with this family. This isn't just another family. It's not just somebody he knew or somebody that he met. He's intimate with these people. He's trying to point out his love for them. And then he says in verse 3, So the sisters sent him saying, Lord, the one whom you love, it's brotherly love, the word for brotherly love there, is ill. And then Jesus says, this does not lead to death in verse 4. Then look at verse 5 again. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. The word for love there isn't just a brotherly love. It's a God kind of love, an unstoppable, unrelenting, unlimited, God-sized kind of love. It's agape is the word that's used there. It's two different words. Using these different words, piling up these words, using narrative. Verse 2, he's connected with his family. Verse 3, he loves them like a brother. Verse 5, he loves them with God-sized love. Why does John point all that out? Because verse 6 sure doesn't seem very loving. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Because from our perspective, we don't think that's what love does. And so why is it that God does this? Do you think, do you think that God knew more about their circumstances than they do? Do you think it's possible that God knew more about how to get to their hearts than they do? Do you think it's possible that God knows more about love than they do? And then we flip it on us. Do you think God knows more about your circumstances than you do? Do you think that it's possible that God knows more about love than you do? See, there's this, this verse of Scripture I challenge you to go to on your own. We won't study it today, but it's in Isaiah chapter 55. In Isaiah chapter 55, it'll rock your world, especially if you're a control freak or you think you know how things are supposed to go. So basically I'm saying if you're proud. Uh, Isaiah chapter 55 says that his ways are not our ways, that his thoughts are not our thoughts. So they're different. He's saying that. And then he uses an analogy. He says, as high as the heavens are from the earth, so far apart are my thoughts from your thoughts. So we don't have time to unpack all of that, but let me just tell you the gist of what that means. God's not just one step ahead of us. He's not on the same playing field we are. As high as the heavens, not just the stars, not just the clouds, this little planet that we live on, we're these little people on this little planet in the midst of this galaxy, in the midst of the universe. He's on a totally different level than us. If that's true, is it possible that he knows more than us? And he knows more about love than us. And try and put it in perspective. Think about it like this. Some of you here have PhDs in different things. Some of you have PhDs. I've met, there's I, one time when we first moved here, I remember seeing the stat. There are more PhDs in this area per capita than anywhere else in the country. And I have met people that have PhDs in things I didn't even know they gave PhDs for. Some of them are so smart, I can't even pronounce what their degree is, much less could I ever obtain the degree that they got. And so some of you that have PhDs, let's just imagine, let's just say for, for instance right now that you're 39. 39 is a great age to kind of pause at, so we'll just say that for right now. Everybody here is younger than 39, amen? All right, there we go. All the, somebody's clapping in the back, that's awesome. Um, let's say you're 39 and you've got a nine-year-old. Let's say that you're at 39 years old, you know a lot more about molecular biology than you did when you were nine, or 19, or 29, or when you're 39. And your nine-year-old, though, has this game. It's called Operation. <laughs> and they want, to, they want to come and teach you about the funny bone. They pulled the funny bone out. And then they Googled funny bone, and they read a Wikipedia article on funny bone. And so they're trying to tell you, you know, when you hit it a certain way, there's a sensation through your fingertips. And, and you're giving a lecture tomorrow on molecular structures of DNA. Isn't it cute that your nine-year-old wants to tell you about the funny bone? Isn't that kind of cute to you? What do you think it's like when a 39-year-old comes to God and wants to tell him what love's supposed to be like? Isn't that kind of cute? Do you, think, do you think that maybe God, who's, how old is God? Uh, eternal? No beginning, no end. He's infinite, there's no limit to him. We're all finite, all limited in every way. Limited by these bodies, limited by our minds, limited by our strength, limited by everything. Everything about us is limited. Do you think that maybe, maybe his view on love is more mature than ours? So what is love? I love what John Piper says when he's commenting on this passage of Scripture. 
He says, love means giving us what we need most. And what we need most is not healing, but a full and endless experience of the glory of God. Love means giving us what will bring us the fullest and longest joy. And what is that? Isn't that a great question to ponder upon? What would give you the fullest and longest joy? What will give you full and eternal joy? The answer of this text is clear. A revelation to your soul of the glory of God. Seeing, admiring, and marveling at, and savoring the glory of God and Jesus Christ. When someone is willing to die, or let your brother die, to give you and your brother that, he loves you. Also, there was a belief in this time period that the soul hung around the body. It was a pagan belief. That the soul would hang around the body for three days. But if the fourth day the body's decayed enough, the soul doesn't want to go back in the body. So Jesus knows, he knows who he's trying to reach, he knows what he's doing in this situation, and he knows the full story. We even know more than they knew. Do you know what's so gracious about God and his love? Is that sometimes, even when we've been so confused, he gives us this glimpse, just a glimpse of his glory, just glimpses at what he's doing in a story. If you were, if you were at the, the prayer service that we had last Sunday evening, we did a prayer service that our elders uh, headed up which was, we just knew that there were a lot of people in our church that were hurting, a lot of people in our church that had some different illnesses, and James chapter 5 says we're supposed to anoint them with oil and pray over them, so we wanted to do that, and it was really something that was put on the heart of one of the guys on our leadership team, John Reeves, and uh, so John Reeves did the teaching to lead us into that time, and he was sharing some of his story. Now, I knew John's story, but as he was sharing his story, I, I just was engrossed in his story. Have you ever had that happen where somebody's sharing their story, and you're just like imagining what they were feeling, what it was like? For those of you who don't know John's story, he told me I could share it. Uh, John's first wife... Uh, was diagnosed with brain cancer when she was just 33 years old, when he was 33 years old. And John, for various reasons, and if you want to know the details, you can ask him some of his story, was 100%, like no doubt, 100% sure that God was going to heal her. And then they were going to go on, and they were going to have a ministry to other people that were struggling with that. He had, he had already had a vision for it, or he knew what it was going to be like, was so confident that it was going to happen, but he knew that they were going to have to go through all the difficulty. But do you know what happened? She died. Do you know what happens when you're 100% confident of something and then God does the opposite thing? You're 100% confused. And that's where he was at. It's a crossroads in his faith. But John ended up sharing, if you were there, you, you heard him share some of the stories, that God gave him some glimpses of what he was doing. One of the things that John had done is he had started a blog uh, talking about his wife and talking about praying for her and trying to get people praying for her, sharing the journey that they were going through. They had over 100,000 people that were following him on this blog. Some people placed their faith in Jesus through this blog. Some people that knew Jesus were kind of wandering away, drifting away, came back to Christ through this blog. There were people that were comforted, obviously, through this blog that were going through similar circumstances. And one of the things that happened was that after his wife died, God put a burden on his heart to spend more time in, in the hospice care. And he would go to hospice care and just talk to people, just have conversations with folks. He told a story about one guy that he met. His name was Bill. Bill was really rough around the edges uh, kind of guy, and he had cancer all through his body, including in his brain. And John just saw him out in the courtyard one day at this place, and so he started talking to him, told him that Jesus loved him, started sharing the gospel with him. So Bill got real hostile about the gospel. Have you met people like this before? Like, got intense about it, was arguing with them. And so they had this argument about Jesus' love for him. <laughs> and then John said, would it be okay if I came back and visited you next Saturday? <laughs> and the guy said, yes! <laughs> he said, can't believe it. He's like, we're fighting. And then the guy said, yeah, I'd love to fight with you some more. And he didn't say that, but it was that idea. And so he said, I came back the next Saturday, I'm talking with this guy, and he was softer this time. But again, shared the gospel with him, talking about some things. He said, and the next week, he said, he was coming on Saturday. He said, the next week I was going to be gone or out of town for some reason, but he wasn't able to come back. He said, in two weeks, I'm going to come back and see you again. Would that be okay? And he said, yeah, that'd be great. Two weeks came around. John was busy at work. Different things were going on. Time kind of went past where he was planning on going over there, but he promised the guy he'd go, and so he goes on a Saturday. He shows up, and he walks up to the door. He said, this is before he really knew how everything worked there. He kind of knocks on the door and opens it at the same time. There's like 20 people in Bill's room. They're all surrounding his bed, and this one guy just looks at him and says, who are you? And he says, I'm John. He said, everybody in the room just started laughing hysterically. Like, literally, some people were bent over laughing at him, and he's standing there like, I don't know why everybody's laughing at me. <laughs> and then the daughter, Bill's daughter, said, my dad told us about a friend named John. We thought he was having hallucinations because of the medication that he was on. <laughs> and the guy who had come up to him and asked him who he was was actually that daughter's pastor, and the pastor then told him, that earlier that week, Bill had called him and said, would you come up here and pray with me to receive Christ? And they actually baptized Bill in an ice tub that they brought down to his room, in his hospice care room there. And the reason why those 20 people are around is because he had just passed into eternity. The guy was about to pass into eternity, separated from God, now passed into eternity in a relationship with Christ. 
And God used John on the death of his wife, his first wife, in that process. But you know what? God was doing millions, if not billions of things in that circumstance, just like he is in your circumstances. But he gave him a glimpse, just a glimpse. Here's what I'm, here's what I'm doing, and I love people that much. Do you think it's possible that maybe, maybe God's view of love is different than yours, that sometimes it's confusing to you when you're experiencing it, but you can trust, you can have courage because he's in control. And you, Do you know what love does? Do you know what perfect love does? The Bible tells us it casts out fear. If you experience that love, then fear is gone because you know you're in the hands of the one who holds the future, who's been in the future because he's outside of time, whose thoughts are not your thoughts, whose ways are not your ways. If high, his thought process and love for you is so beyond what you could even grasp in your mind, but do you trust that he loves you? If you trust that he loves you, then put your toes in. Take the next step of faith. He's calling you into the unknown. It's a promise. Will you trust him? How could you trust him? And what we end up seeing is that even though Jesus says in this passage, I am the resurrection and the life, do you know why this passage is written? It's so that his followers would be strengthened in their faith. Because what you see is more confusion. We don't have time to go through all the verses, but in verses 8 through 13, you see more confusion. Jesus says that Lazarus is asleep. They think he literally means sleep. So they're like, well, isn't that the best thing for him? Why are you going to travel over there just to wake the guy up? Don't do that, Jesus. It's rude. You know, they don't, it's Scott paraphrase. You can read the verses yourself. And then Jesus says, just bullet points, like you guys aren't getting it. He's dead. That's verse 14. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. He's also showing himself to be all-knowing here. Because they're a day travel away still. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. He loves them that much. So that you may believe, but let us go to him. See, what happens if you go back into verse 6, there's a word that starts that verse. And it's not the word yet, like in the NIV. The NIV is trying to bring out the contrast. He loved him, yet he remained where he was at. No, that's not it. The word that's actually there in the original language is the word that ESV uses, so. It could be translated, therefore. It could be translated, because. Because he loved them, he stayed there two more days. He loved them that much that he'd do something to them that made no sense. But he's going to bring love into their life. He says, so that you may believe, verse 14, verse 15, I'm sorry, but let us go to him. Well, that doesn't make sense either. If we go there... They're going to kill you, and they're probably going to kill us. But look what Thomas says. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Oh, I love this. When you think of Thomas, what do you think of? He's got a nickname, right? Like, yeah, you all know it. Like you heard before. He is a, that is the most unfair nickname that's ever been given. Like, let's just put, put yourself in Thomas' situation for a minute. Read John chapter 20. All of his buddies see the resurrected Christ. They all see the scars in his hand. They all see the, you know, the, the wound in his side. Then they come to him. Have you ever seen punked? I hope not. You're a Christian. But at any rate, they, they come to him. All of them come to him. Like, we saw Jesus raised from the dead. You all saw it, and you want me just to believe it. Is it that unreasonable that he says, unless I see it too, I'd think I was getting punked by my friends. If they all, I saw something that's unbelievable that would be our greatest wish and hope. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> Let me know when he comes back. And we dog him out for that. You see, we, make, we can make these Bible characters so one-dimensional we forget they're real people. See, that's one of the things I, I, I don't like. There's some, there's some benefits to like strength finder, disc, like spiritual gifts. I want everybody here, I believe you have a specific spiritual gift that God gave you at your salvation to use for his glory. You make the most, and, and they can change, and God does different things at different times. I, I believe all that. I think the gifts are great to find out. But you know what I hate about the tests? Is they make people, see, it's like you fit into this box. You're a D, you're an I. Is there a Q? Like, is there an L? Like, what, what are, are there M's out there? Like, we, there's a whole alphabet we're not using. You're an otter. You're a golden retriever. You're an image bearer of God, so not, not. As much as I love dogs, that's not, that's not what you are. And now it's like, you're a three, you're a nine, you're an eight. It's like, okay, these things may have some characteristics about them, but let me tell you something about people. You're all weird. And so am I. And we're complicated. And it's hard just to label and put you in a box. And the same, Thomas was a real guy. And here you see some of the complexity of him. Yeah, he doubted. And you know what, what he says here? He's actually wrong. He's not going to die here. And in fact, when Jesus does die, he flees. But in this moment, he's a man of courage. Let's go with him, that we may die also. <laughs> Where does that courage come from? 
And you want to talk about application? How do you know to take your next step? Here it is. I'm going to give you some points. Where do you think? I don't, there's probably 100 places that, that you could say, I've got at least three ideas where this came from for Thomas. And the first one is this, from the past. From what Jesus had done in the past. What he's seen Jesus. We can trust Jesus in the present because of what he's done in the past. The past is the best predictor of future, right? So what has Jesus done in the past? What is he can go back to all the healings, all the miracles, all the other times when it was confusing, when they were afraid, when they're called to step into the unknown, and Jesus shows up, and Jesus is in control, and Jesus has got power, and Jesus cares. Thinking of that one, the back path of this passage is all about Jesus' care for us, his compassion for us. Think about a time when they were confused and they wondered if Jesus cared before. It's in Mark chapter 4, those of you who want to look it up. In Mark chapter 4, what ends up happening is that there's these professional fishermen that are on the boat, Jesus is sleeping, and this storm comes. And Jesus doesn't wake up. He wasn't just napping. My man is out. There's waves crashing into the boat. These professional fishermen get so scared, they cry out to Jesus in terror, don't you care? They're at a moment where they think they're going to die. And they're questioning the love of God. Some of you have been at spots before where you wonder, don't you care about me? If you care, why this? That's where they're at. And then Jesus wakes up. And he doesn't bring him in and go, I love you so much. Let me tell you about my love for you. You know what he does? He stands up and he goes, shh, wind. And what was total chaos, shh, waves. That's how my kid's little kid Bible says it. Uh, The ESV says that he says, peace be still and glassy smooth water. And then do you know what the Bible says? They were terrified. The storm's over. What are they scared of? They're not terrified of what's going on outside the boat. They're terrified of the guy who's in the boat. Because then they say, even the wind and the waves obey him. You think Thomas thought of that in this moment? They're going to kill you, but I mean, I guess if I die and I'm with the guy who the wind and the waves obey, it's my time to go. And you think about your past. When have there been other moments? When you're in the, you will have other moments, by the way. In this world, you will have trouble. It's a promise from Jesus, not because you're a bad person or you didn't pray enough. There's difficulty in this world. And God orchestrates it, doesn't just allow it, orchestrates it for your good because he loves you. And so when you're in one of those moments, again, can you think back to a past moment where Jesus came through? I think of my own story. I think I've probably got a handful, maybe 10, most, that are like the stories. Those are the stories that go back. You did this and you did that. And all of us, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, at least you have that moment. You were lost, now you're found. You were blind, now you see. You were in darkness, and he gave you light. He gave you truth. If he stopped at that moment, that would be enough. What in the past can you go to to give you courage in the present? Or maybe for some of you, you're not in that moment now, but it'll come. And then not just the past, but other people. I'm thinking about Thomas here, the experiences he's had with Jesus, and he says this statement, let us also go that we may die with him. And he's seen so much in the life of Jesus up to this moment. And that what Jesus has done in other people's lives, he's healed from a distance. He knows that Jesus doesn't have to go to this guy. He can, he can heal without even leaving this place. He could heal this guy. He does, but he says, let's, if he says, let's go, then we, we should probably go with him. Let's go. He's seen what he's done. He saw what he did with that little boy's lunch. And he fed 5,000 people. He saw what he did when Peter steps out. Of, he's, uh, Peter, like Peter. Peter walked on water. Like he saw all that. He's seen what God's done in other people's lives. Do you know what, as Christians, you know one of the reasons why God gives us pictures like Moses and Abraham, these different people in the Bible? It's not so that we'll learn more about Moses, learn more about, it's so we'll learn more about God. And you look in some of their lives, when they're in moments, when God calls them to do something that, humanly speaking, makes no sense, and then they're faithful, you know what that shows us? Be faithful and trust God. He'll take care of the results. Think about Abraham, when Abraham's told to kill his son. You know, if God told me to kill one of my kids, you know what, I I think... That's, that's a, no way. Like CPS finds out I haven't even thinking about that. They're going to take my kids away. I'm going to kill one of my kids. But Abraham had this willingness to sacrifice what was most important in his life. And God showed up. Think about Joseph. What about Joseph? Some of you have been taught bad theology that if you're good, then good things will happen in your life. That's karma. That's not the Bible. Prosperity gospels sometimes teach stuff like that. I don't know how you can be a prosperity preacher and have Joseph in your Bible. You read, you read Genesis and seen Joseph? Every time he's faithful, bad stuff happens. So he, yeah, I'm going to be faithful. My brothers sell me into slavery. Okay, I'm going to be faithful here, and I'm not going to cheat with Potiphar's wife, and then I go to jail, and then I'm faithful in jail, and they forget me. He just keeps being faithful, and bad stuff keeps happening. But then you get to see, as you get to look into his life after years of suffering, God uses his life and all that suffering, the saving of many people. And then he says in Genesis 50, 20, 
Man intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Do you think that's a guy who had a better grasp on God's love than some of us do? And so you see that where you can look at other people's lives and see that God showed up. And if God showed up in their lives, it's the same God. Why wouldn't he show up in my life? So you can look at your past, you can look at other people, and you know what you can bank on? God's presence. What does Thomas say here? Thomas says, let's go with him. You're not going by myself. If Jesus just said, hey, why don't you go back to Judea? See how, see how Lazarus, they're going to kill us. But if I get to go with you, I'm, I'm going with you. You're, I'm with you. It's like in Exodus chapter 33 when God tells Moses, you go in, he's so mad at the people, he says, you go into the promised land. But I'm not going with you. And then Moses stops and says, if you don't go, we don't want to go. God, we so desperately need your presence. But you know what he promises his presence? Now, God's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. But he promises his presence like when you walk out by faith. What do you think the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 says? I have all authority at the beginning. Then it tells us what to do. Go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I commanded you. And then what's the end? I'll be with you always. It's his manifest presence that you experience. You sense his presence when you're walking. Not when you're grasping for comfort, by the way. Not when you're trying to get control. But when you're walking by faith and living on a mission, he promises to manifest his presence in your midst. Will you trust him? Will you get your toes wet? Will you step out? Whatever the thing is for you. For some of you, it's becoming a believer. For others of you, it's being bold in your faith. For some of you, it's time to trust other people. There's all kinds of things that God could be calling you to do. Whatever the commandments are in Scripture could be your next call of faith. And what do you cling to? His promises. He promises, I will be with you. Lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And what am I doing? I'm revealing my glory to you. It's for your good. It's for my glory, even in the pain. And I have control, even in the chaos. But not only that, he also loves us. And, and why can you trust him? Why can you have courage? Because of his care for you. Because he cares for you in your circumstances, whatever your circumstances are. And that's what we see at the end of this passage. I flip over a little bit. We'll, go to, we'll start reading in verse uh, 32. What ends up happening, he has this encounter with Martha. It's very similar to the one he has with Mary that we'll read here in just a moment. Uh, Martha, very different personality than Mary. Jesus loves them both. And look at verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Interesting fact about Mary. Every time we see her three times, she's at the feet of Jesus. Some One time learning here, mourning, and in the next chapter, worshiping. Chapter 12 is when she anoints his feet. Saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, the word that's used for weeping here is a loud wailing. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, loud wailing, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. If you want to know about the emotions of God, if you want to know how Jesus would feel at a funeral, this is a great passage to look at. This is a passage that brought people incredible comfort, but we can look at these verses right here and think that Jesus was being like just sad for his friends. The language is used here for him being troubled in his spirit, being moved in his spirit, are words of anger. In fact, in classical Greek, they're used of an animal snorting, like ready to charge bull kind of idea. So ang- there's, a, there's a rage here in this. And so the question is, what's he so angry about? Let me read you this quote by a Greek scholar, B.B. Warfield. He says this, It is death that is the object of his wrath. What is he looking at? What is he seeing here? And behind death, him who has the power of death, and whom he has come into the world to destroy. It's his enemy, his ultimate enemy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. And he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words, and I love this, it's so strong, as a champion who prepares for conflict. Think of like a UFC fighter about to enter the octagon. A boxer. I remember growing up, my, my favorite football player, when I was a kid, I was cursed with the, um, being born in the Detroit area, and I was a Detroit Lions fan. But we'd have a good player every once in a while. <laughs> and Barry Sanders was there. But my favorite player was Chris Spielman. He's a middle linebacker. I don't know if this is true or not. I see some Ohio State fans out there. I'm so sorry. I don't know if this is true or not, but I remember hearing one time that Chris Spielman, in order to get himself ready for a game, would start in his, his goal, the middle linebacker, those of you don't know the game at all, he's supposed to tackle the quarterback, tackle the running backs. He would envision them hurting his family to get himself enraged against the people that he wants to destroy in that moment. And I think about the intensity of those emotions. Like if I were out there and think about somebody hurt my family, yeah, I would, want, I would want to destroy somebody if they hurt my family. Jesus doesn't have to imagine anything. He's looking out at his children, Mary, whom he loves, with a God kind of love and a brotherly love. 
He's seeing the effects of what his enemy has done, ravaging this world. Death, sin-destroying, Satan blinding. He's in rage at this enemy. He is the resurrection and life. He defeats it because he is risen. Are you still with me? He's risen from the cross. He experiences death. He experiences the worst sin that's ever happened, the most heinous thing that's ever happened that we oftentimes sentimentalize. And we talk about, oh, the rugged cross, and we love the cross, and we cry thinking about the cross. The cross was awful. It's the worst sin that ever happened in all of human history. They killed God. And God used it for your good and his glory. That's how much he loves you. Do you think he knows more about love than us? He cares. And here we see in the rage, we see the care. Look what happens next. Verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? They said, the Lord, come and see. And then the shortest verse in the Gospel of John, Jesus wept. Now this, this word for weeping is different than the weeping that Mary was doing. This is more like, imagine when you've seen someone or you've experienced yourself, tears well up in your eyes, like the emotion, your face gets red. and there, it's, It was a quiet, silent weeping. But this is sadness. And so he's got all the emotions happening. He's got the anger and the sadness happening simultaneously. We're complex beings. And Jesus was fully human. And he enters into our pain. And he cares about you. And the question scholars argue about in this passage is why is Jesus weeping? And you read the passage and you can say the people there, but just because they said it doesn't mean that that's what God's telling us. It's just it's what they thought. They thought. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? There's some truth to that. He loved Lazarus. But I don't think there's any way that he's weeping because Lazarus died. He knows what they don't know. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's not weeping because Lazarus died. Some people say he's weeping because of the effects of sin and death. That's, he's angry for that. I believe that. But you think about who it is that's there. He's the only one. He's the only one that knows what it's like to be in heaven where there's no crying and no pain and no tears and to come to this place where there is death and there is pain and there is abuse and there is divorce and there is all kinds of mess. And he knows what he's about to do to his friend, Lazarus who's in that place where there's no crying and there's no, is he doing him a favor? There's no pain. I remember when my dad died, a lot of people said stuff to me. People say stupid stuff at funerals, just so you know. Just be gracious when you lose somebody. Just, just let them say their thing. But there was one person I remember what they said. It came to me, their father had passed away and she looked at me, the woman that I loved, and she said, your dad loved you very much but where he's at, it's too good. He would not come back to see you. Where Lazarus is at, he don't want to come back to this place. I believe that Jesus is weeping because he knows what he's about to do for the sake of his followers and their faith because he loves Mary and Martha, because he loves the world. But for Lazarus, he's going to have to die again. He's going to he's gonna have to know what it's like to be there and then come here. He loved you that much. Did he bring Lazarus? What ends up happening, we don't have time to go through the whole passage, is that they go to the tomb. And there's a little bit of a squabble with Martha there. Like, he's going to stink. And it's kind of funny what ends up happening there. And he says, but roll away the stone. They roll. And it's interesting, too, that Jesus, who could, he rolls away his own stone. He uses people to accomplish his miracle. Roll away the stone. And he says a few words. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus comes out. And then do you know what his enemies say? We got to kill him or everybody's going to believe in him. Oh, we wouldn't want that, would we? And what will happen is it will threaten our comfort and our control. They don't want to live by faith. You know what happened with my daughter? Uh, we went out to the beach and got her out there, and I didn't like, throw her in the water. It wasn't like some cruel you know, thing that's going to cause therapy later. It wasn't that. We walked out there, and we're standing by the water. So I don't want to put my toes in. I'm like, oh, why don't, we just, why don't I just sit down on my knee? And I put her on my knee, and her toes are just dangling above the water, and the waves come up a few times. I started singing to her a David Crowder song that was popular at the time. I remember this about a decade ago is that when the waters rise and hope takes flight, oh my soul, oh my soul. And the song, the chorus goes, I will never let go. I will never let go. I'll never let go. And I, just, I said, I'll keep holding your hands if you put your toes in. She put her toes in. She experienced the water. It's one of the reasons why she could enjoy it this past Friday when we were out there playing in the waves. She's not afraid of the unknown anymore because it's known, because she's taken that step of faith. Some of you, God's calling you, put your toes in. I'm with you. I'm present. I've always been present. I'm present with other people. You can look at the past and what I've done. I am here now. I am with you. Will you trust me? Let's pray. Father, 
I pray, I pray right now specifically for anybody here who has not placed their faith in your son, Jesus Christ, as their Savior. I pray this would be the moment of salvation for them. I pray right now you tap them on the shoulder and say, he's talking to you. And God, that you'd speak to their hearts, that you'd call them to yourself. You promise in the scripture that if your son is lifted up, that you'll draw men to yourself, men and women. And God, I pray that you'd draw someone to yourself right now. If you can acknowledge what we said at the beginning of the service, that you have no excuses left. Maybe you're just afraid. Will you trust him? Will you step out? Like my daughter putting her toes in the water, will you step out and ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior? Will you, will you stop trying to clean up your own act? And will you believe that when Jesus died on the cross for you, he died for all of your sins. You don't have to atone for them. You don't have to take care of them. You don't have to clean yourself up to make up for them. That Jesus did that work on the cross. And we ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior. We ask him to forgive you of your sins. You can do it right now. Just pray to him. He says that if you believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, that he promises that he will save you. It's a promise. And claim that promise by faith right now. Father, I pray for those that have trusted you as Savior. I pray some of them, they need to be bold in their faith. They, they're not sharing their faith with anybody. And we talk about who's your one. And we talk about all these different things. And they feel like they're the only person in the church that's not sharing their faith. And, and Father, I pray that you'd have them step out by faith and be bold. Give them the courage that they need. Will you strengthen them? Will you show them the courage? Will you show them the strength? Will you give them? I pray right now for you, if that's you that I'm speaking to, that you would decide on, on Tuesday, I'm going to, and you'd make a decision right now, that you'd solidify the decision. I just hope that it happens at some point, but you make a decision to step out by faith. Some of you need to be more generous with your finances, and you'd make a decision to do that, and it'd be a tangible decision to do that. And some of you, you need to confess a sin, and maybe you know the person that you need to confess to. Maybe it's reconciling with that person, and you think they've wronged you, but you have the courage to start that conversation. Some of you need to need to be... You need to be sensitive to the Spirit when, it, when the Spirit guides you and He tells you you're supposed to go pray for somebody and you don't have the courage to do that and God will give you the courage. And it might be an awkward encounter with somebody, but you were obedient and you listened. Will you step out by faith? Will you keep taking steps of faith in God? Will you speak to have hundreds of conversations right now in this moment and tell people what is their next step of faith? Father, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for giving us your word and clearly directing us. Thank you for revealing your character, that, that you are in control, that you are a sovereign God, that you're a caring God. It'd be one thing if you were just in control, but that you're caring and you love us, and that you love us with a love that's beyond what we could even grasp. God, I pray for our church that we would know the height, the depth, the length, the width of your love, that you'd fill us with the fullness of who you are. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.